Hello and welcome to Voices of Development with your host Naomi Whitbourne. In this podcast, I speak to a diverse range of voices, all working to address global poverty and social inequality. Today I'm speaking to Beth Larson. Beth is the co-founder of Charm Impact, an impact investment platform that crowdsources funding for renewable energy startups in emerging markets, including Kenya, Nigeria and India. Over the past two years, Charm Impact has partnered with the UK government and various energy non-profits to successfully crowdsource over £400,000 to support over 300,000 people. Beth's success comes as no great surprise. Not only does she have a dual master's from the University of Oxford, she is also a seasoned entrepreneur, having spent the last 10 years setting up social enterprises and developing non-profit programmes across the world, including with the Health Development Initiative in Rwanda. Sheer determination to drive positive change has been at the heart of Beth's success. She says... It can be exhausting caring about the world. But the thing is, there will always be problems to solve and people to help. The more of us that care, the faster we will build the world we want to live in. Beth Larson, welcome to Voices of Development. Wow, thank you for that very generous introduction, Naomi. And thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I I think we're gonna have a great discussion. We definitely are. Beth, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I didn't mention this in the introduction, but not only are you a highly successful and talented social entrepreneur in your own right, you also just happen to be a very close friend of mine as well. So it's a real personal pleasure to speak to you about your fantastic organisation today. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you are the co-founder of Charm Impact, So first things first, what does the organization aim to do? We we sit at a very interesting nexus between finance and development. On the one hand, we're we're dedicated to this energy access challenge, right? So there are currently about 1.2 billion people globally that lack access to electricity or are connected to an unreliable grid which is crazy when you think about it, like one fifth of the world's population cannot reliably turn on the lights or charge their phones or run appliances in their shops, right? And so when people don't have access to power, they supplement with alternative sources like kerosene lanterns or diesel generators, which are harmful for the environment and also incredibly unsafe. You know, children touch them or tip them over and get burned. Uh, inhaling fumes causes respiratory illnesses. People die from carbon monoxide poisoning every year because of products like this. And it honestly is pretty horrific. It, it's also really expensive. I, I don't think people realize how far clean energy products have come, but the technology has advanced to the point where you know, the prices have come down and it's actually cheaper to run a micro business in Nigeria, for example, on solar than it is to run diesel generators all the time. 
which is crazy, right? <laughs> it's crazy and awesome and creates enormous opportunities for entrepreneurs to step in and find ways to give people access to these increasingly affordable clean energy products. And, and they are, right? Like entrepreneurs are stepping up and there are thousands of small businesses providing clean energy solutions to their communities. The challenge is that they find it incredibly difficult to access the financing they need to grow their businesses because they fall into this financing gap where they are they're too big for microfinance, but too small for a more traditional investment. And the options that are available to them are incredibly expensive. So what we do is we aim to help these entrepreneurs bridge that gap by providing them with loans and helping them build a track record of managing debt so that they can eventually grow beyond us and access larger sums of capital from some of the more traditional players. What you're doing is absolutely fantastic. And this focus on financing clean energy in emerging markets feels so timely given this spotlight on sustainability at the moment. So I've got tons of questions, as you'd imagine, including understanding some of this more technical language too which we'll come back to in just a moment. But before we do, I'm curious to know what inspired you to found the organization. Really good question. And it's interesting because, you know, my co-founder and I actually came at this work from very different perspectives. You know, he had been working at an energy startup that was doing peer-to-peer trading here in the UK, um, I think in Hackney. And then through a hackathon that he participated in, he came across a company in Bangladesh that was doing something similar, but using smart meters to trade energy among rural households who are connected to a microgrid. Super interesting stuff. And so from that, he got really interested in this energy access problem and was trying to figure out where he could contribute and realized that there was a massive financing gap for early stage companies working on these problems and started Charm to fill that gap. Meanwhile, I come from a development background. I actually, um, I wanted to be a doctor my entire life. And then my senior year of undergrad, I decided not to apply to medical school and moved to Rwanda to work for a health nonprofit instead. (laughs) So yeah, luckily my parents are very supportive, but it was really through that work that I started seeing Some of the gaps in international financing, you know, local organizations, both nonprofit and for-profit, are at a significant disadvantage in the international funding ecosystem. And so there I was working for this small local nonprofit that was run entirely by local staff who were embedded in the community understood the challenges and the problems best, but yet they were the ones who were getting overlooked. Um, And this was incredibly frustrating for me. And eventually that frustration led me to business school and impact investing because I wanted to figure out how to get control of those resources and then channel it into local projects that I thought were doing great work. So when I met Gav, he had actually been working on this project for about a year already. And we hit it off right away. You know, we bonded over 
a passion for driving investment into local communities and doing it in a way that had a social and environmental impact. And how great that that is exactly what you're doing. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've crowdsourced over £400,000, which has enabled you to invest in nine local renewable energy startups across sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So to help bring this to life a little bit, perhaps you could share an example or two of the sorts of organisations you've invested in. Most of our loans go to solar projects, though, I mean, more recently, we've been interested in things like clean cook stoves, also biogas. But one example I can share, and actually the most recent project that we funded is with a company called Coolbox, which went towards providing 300 solar freezers for female fish traders in a market in Nigeria. And Because these women's shops are connected to an unreliable grid, they normally either spend huge amounts of money to run their freezers or they have to figure out how to store their products elsewhere. And so if they aren't able to do that, then their fish spoil, right? So then with these solar freezers, they don't have to worry about spontaneously losing electricity their products don't go to waste because they can store their products for longer. And they actually also save money on their monthly energy spending. So super cool stuff. And actually, um, cooling for food storage is a massive market globally. But what I find even more interesting about what Coolbox is doing is that this kind of tech can be used to solve other cold chain issues as well, like, like uh, vaccine supply chains, right? COVID vaccines need to be kept cold or they're destroyed. So in areas where the the grid connection is weak or unreliable or non-existent, people are going to have an incredibly hard time accessing the vaccine. So Coolbox has actually developed a vaccine fridge now that is under review by the World Health Organization. And if approved, we'll be able to reliably store both the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Very cool project and so timely. It just goes to show how cross-cutting the energy sector is. But just going back to some of the more technical language that you mentioned at the beginning, I'd like to clarify for the benefit of our listeners that unlike grant funding, which is typically a one-way donation, Charm Impact is an impact investment platform. So for those of our listeners who are not so familiar with impact investing, as simply as possible, how would you describe it? Difficult question, I know. Yeah, I mean, it is because obviously impact investing covers such a broad spectrum of capital, but at a basic level, impact investing is making an investment that will generate a financial return as well as a measurable social or environmental impact. So with our loans, for example, investors do expect to get their money back with a bit of interest on top, as well as create certain impact outcomes, right? So they expect to reach a certain number of households with clean energy products or avoid CO2 emissions, um, help small business owners save money and increase their profitability. So it's really a bit of both, you know, 
in the space, you hear a variety of, of phrases like profit with purpose or, you know, the triple bottom line. Everyone loves that one, right? <laughs> uh, which, which refers to a framework that takes into account people, planet, and profit. And it's really, it's all trying to get to this idea that we can rethink the way that we do business and fundamentally change how capitalism works if we change how it's measured, right? Because the thing is, what gets measured gets improved upon. And, and in traditional finance, it's all about risk and return. If an investment is higher risk, then you would expect a higher financial return. Those of us in impact investing are asking people to then include a third dimension, which is the impact of those investments. And so the more that we as a society demand that investors take into account social and environmental impact into those investment decisions, you know, measure it, report against it, the more funding we're going to see shift towards development goals and the more equitable global financial markets will start to be. And then we'll finally, hopefully, have a shot at getting out of this ridiculous neoliberal economics haze that we've been in for the last 50 years and creating a global economy that actually ensures that we have a prosperous and sustainable future, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Very succinctly put. And Actually, Beth, that point about neoliberalism is a really interesting one and at the heart of a very complex debate in impact investment, isn't it? For those of our listeners who are a little less familiar with this space, impact investment has, over the past decade or so, become quite divisive. Although some have heralded this shift as a revolution that will save capitalism, others argue that it's just a way for the rich to stay rich whilst keeping a bit of a moral conscience. So, and I'm conscious this is, again, quite a technical area, but as straightforwardly as possible, what's your view here? This, I love this debate because there's, we could probably do an entire podcast just debating the various nuances of this discussion. But first, I would say, good, be skeptical. Stay skeptical because you're right, there is a lot of hype in this field. And look, I get really excited about this stuff too, because I really do think that it's possible to harness capitalism as a force for good. That said, just because we can do it doesn't mean that everyone will or that they won't use these impact finance tools as a smokescreen to get away with some sketchy behavior. So, you know, the risks associated with capitalism exploiting people, perpetuating wealth inequalities, that, that's still there. So, so definitely stay alert. On the other hand, I would definitely caution against writing off the private sector completely because honestly, we are desperate for ways to unlock private capital if we want to have a prayer of achieving things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You know, in the industry, we keep hearing this $2.5 trillion number. There's a $2.5 trillion annual funding gap to ensure that we can do things like eradicate poverty and prevent a climate catastrophe by 2030. And that money is not coming from the public sector. Do you know how much goes into official development assistance every year? $150 billion. That is less than one-tenth of what is needed to achieve these goals. Meanwhile, 
there is ridiculous amounts of money under management globally, like hundred trillion dollars worth in global assets under management. BlackRock alone manages seven trillion dollars, right? So these are just absolutely ridiculous sums of wealth. And so we need innovative financial solutions that can unlock even just a fraction of that and put it towards social and environmental initiatives. Really good answer to a really complex debate. And thankfully, Charm Impact is clearly on the side of organisations having a genuinely positive impact. So I'm curious to know how your selection process works in practice, because you've invested in nine organisations so far, presumably from a long list of potential organisations. And you've obviously fine-tuned this process because all of them have been a real success so far, haven't they? Yeah. There have been no defaults. So how do you make sure both that your investors see a return, but also that these organisations are genuinely having a positive impact? So once we're connected to a company that fits our general investment thesis, we take them through a pretty rigorous application process. I mean, because we, like you said, we have to assess both their ability to repay as well as their potential impact. So, you know, we, we do all of the traditional things where we look at their financials and history of sales and their team experience to evaluate their credit risk or how confident we are in their ability to repay. But we also factor into our scoring their potential for impact. So who are the customers that they're reaching? Are they underserved? How many products will will this support and how much CO2 emissions will be avoided from this? Is this project, is it being used for products that can then go on to help people generate additional income, right? And build local communities. So there's all these factors that go into the scoring process. And then what we actually do, which I think is quite unique in the industry, is that we use that impact assessment in pricing the loans. So I, I think I mentioned before that in investment, it's all about risk and return, risk and return, right? So the price of the loan reflects how risky the investment is. But then we also layer in the impact score so that if a project is higher impact, then that'll actually bring down the, the price of the loan. I think you've hit an absolute winner with this model and I can only hope that this focus on impact alongside risk and return becomes part of the mainstream with an impact investment. I want to move our conversation on slightly though to some more of the challenges within the international development sector. And specifically, I'd like to pick up on a point that you made at the very beginning of the conversation where you mentioned that it was when you were working for the Nonprofit Health Development Initiative, or HDI, in Rwanda, that you became very aware of some of the real challenges within the development sector. And in a separate article I read, you put this very succinctly, I thought. You said, and I quote, I realised very quickly that organisations like HDI had no power in the foreign aid system. We were held accountable to our donors rather than the people we were trying to help, which often meant the projects were designed to suit the donors' interests over the community's needs. What was going on here? 
the thing is, when you are working in a small nonprofit, you are constantly under-resourced, constantly chasing funding. And so you are very much at the mercy of your donors. If you have great funding partners who actually, you know, give you the autonomy to do your work, great. You are super lucky, but everyone has different priorities. Everyone has an agenda and that agenda may or may not be aligned with what the community needs. And I think from my perspective, it seems like the answer to that has been, you know, kind of increasingly more rigorous monitoring and evaluation requirements. And that that gets at part of this accountability problem by making sure that organizations are doing what they say they're going to do with the money and achieving the outcomes they're claiming. But like, at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything about who holds the power in that relationship. Community members are rarely involved in the design of interventions. So it's not like they're choosing which programs are available to them. And then if a community thinks that a program is garbage, there is not a lot of flexibility to actually change where the funding is allocated mid-project. So the result is that communities don't have the power to be agents in their own change and funding is getting wasted. And that's actually part of the reason why I started looking at the private sector in the first place, because to me, if you're selling products and services to people that you think are helpful, if they don't think it's good, they're not gonna buy it. You cannot exist without your customers. And so I really liked that, at least in that model, there was some shift in the accountability and the power structures. I want to continue this theme around challenges within the international development sector. But picking up on another point that you made briefly earlier, I'd like to move on to the topic of diversity and inclusion. Now, one of the many things I love about Charm Impact is your very active focus on diversity. I was quite shocked to read recently that a study found that approximately 90% of all capital invested in East Africa went to companies that had one or more European or North American founders. 90% of capital. But you've defied these statistics at Charm Impact. In your first five investments alone, 100% of your founders were people of colour and 80% were locally based teams. So when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what have your experiences been? And more specifically, why do you think you've achieved these fantastic statistics when so few others have? I am so glad that you asked this question because let me tell you, okay, when I initially got into impact investing, especially wanting to invest in sub-Saharan Africa, I was constantly told that it was not possible to build a portfolio that was majority local founders. They just said the deals did not exist. There were not enough high quality investable deals. And so I was told that, you know, either you have to 
massively broaden your range geographically or give it up. And that just is not my experience at all. There are so many really interesting and like high powered entrepreneurs in these markets. They're just being overlooked. And so really all we've done is noticed a massive market gap that's been there this entire time. And we're not, we're not dumb enough to overlook it. And, and look, I know I'm not going to say that there aren't challenges. I think part of the issue with why investors are not able to find, you know, quote unquote, high quality deals is because they're just not offering the kind of capital that local entrepreneurs need, right? So even in early stage impact investing in off-grid energy, sometimes, or I should say, oftentimes the smallest deals that these investors can do are really in like the $500,000 range. And that is an enormous amount of capital for a startup to take on. But it's because of the way that some of these funds are structured. Like I said, they can't make it make sense from a cost or time perspective to write smaller tickets. So the result is that who are they seeing them? They're seeing larger companies that are foreign owned, that have more of a track record, that are a bit larger, that can take on that kind of financing. But also, I do think that there is something to be said for investors just need to work a bit harder. They need to work a bit harder. They need to look in different places and make a commitment to investing in local founders, period. Very well said. And I think that's a really important reminder that there's still a long way to go in the area of diversity and inclusion. And we've been talking mostly about the recipients of investment there. But of course, you yourself are a female founder. So I'm really curious to know at a more personal level, do you feel you've ever faced any hurdles within your role as a female leader? Well, yes is the short answer. Look, Charm is working at the intersection of three male-dominated fields, right? It's fintech, energy, and finance. And so it's really not surprising that I've faced a bit of sexist nonsense in this space. You know, we've all been in meetings where people only address the men in the room or ask where the other co-founder is, but I'm sitting right there. I've approached investors who kept commenting on my appearance or one thought it was appropriate to stroke my leg during the meeting. I actually, okay, I had one man cut me off mid-pitch to tell me that he thought, given my profile, that I would be better off doing charity work than running a startup. You're <laughs> joking. No, I mean, it. it's absolutely real. But luckily for us, there's like so many great female networks out here that are you know, supporting women in tech, women in finance and all this stuff. And we're just so good at lifting each other up. I love that. And I love that these sorts of networks exist. Although I do also think it's a really stark and sad reminder that they still need to exist, to be honest. 
But tell me a little bit more about these networks. Have you had any female mentors or co-workers that have been a particular positive force for lifting you up and providing support when you're facing any challenges? Or equally, do you have any male allies that have been really supportive? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely have an awesome network of female friends and colleagues, yourself included. Um, I, yeah, I've had a number of mentors that have guided me along this journey. Also, I'm super lucky. I have a really great co-founder who gets it and is very much like, if someone says something off in a meeting, he is the first person to, to say something. And I really appreciate that because, you know, it's not always easy to do it for yourself. You know, you don't want to cause waves or maybe you're just so surprised that someone said it that you just don't even know what to do. So it is really great to be working with someone who like is a true ally. I think, I think that makes a big difference. Definitely. And I think we all need figures like that in our lives, don't we? And keeping with this theme of overcoming personal hurdles, I have also read, Beth, that you are a self-identified recovering perfectionist who understands, and I quote here, the fear of failure and how crippling that fear can be. So can you talk us through some of your experiences here? Really, really good question. My perfectionism has bubbled up in a number of different ways. And I think a lot of it has to do with kind of tying your self-worth to something external, right? So to your career, to, you know, getting other people's approval. Um, And so it's definitely affected me, affected me in grad school. You know, I would get so stressed out about, you know, producing like the perfect paper or presentations. And in that level of stress, it's just so unnecessary. And unmanageable, right? Exactly. No, absolutely. It really, it really isn't. And so, and especially in, in the startup, right? Everything's uncertain. You know, you, it's kind of your baby. You want it to do well. And if you don't, figure out how to manage that, then everything could feel kind of like life or death, make or break. Like, okay, if I don't get this pitch perfect, I failed the company. So for me, kind of battling that perfectionism has really just been redefining where I get my own, my own worth. And figuring out how to come to terms with the fact that you know you are awesome and great just the way you are even if everything blows up you're going to be okay and you have people around you that are going to support you and you know what worst case scenario you figure something else out you do it all again you know and and that's been the the biggest thing just doing the work to decouple your worth from anything external oh Beth you've shared that so brilliantly 
And I have to say, I found a lot of that very relatable. And I'm sure many of our listeners will have as well. And this is, of course, the kind of conversation we have all the time over a glass of wine, but it's very different when it's going to be streamed to hundreds of people. So thank you for being so honest. Yeah, of course. But I'm going to change gears for the final time. Because as we move towards the end of this conversation, I'm really keen that we finish as constructively and practically as possible. So if you could change one thing about the impact investing and or international development sector more broadly, what would it be, do you think? Mm. So if we're kind of looking at both of these sectors, I would say like the main thing is to just keep breaking down the barriers between them. I don't, I don't think that development organizations realize how much power they have to actually be part of that solution in unlocking the $2.5 trillion that's needed to actually achieve the sustainable development goals. Philanthropy can be used to incentivize private funds to enter very high risk for-profit deals. So that's one thing. And then, you know, also increasingly the for-profit sector is realizing that they also need some of that experience and expertise from, from the development sector as well. Because, you know, some of the conversations we're having in impact investing, I swear, it's such old news in development. Like these were conversations that the development field was having maybe like 20 years ago. Okay, things around, okay, engaging communities and having local partnerships and gosh, impact measurement stuff. There are ways that development professionals can act as allies, boots on the ground, and kind of guide some of these for-profit professionals who really want to make a difference with their money, but just really don't know the best way to do it. And so I think just continuing to build the connections between the two spaces will be super important for, like I said, unlocking the capital that we need for these problems and actually, you know, tackling some of these really complex global challenges. So many wise words, Beth. I could go on for hours and we'll have to continue this some other time. But to close our conversation today, some of our listeners may be thinking that like you, they would like to have a positive impact in the world, perhaps in impact investing, perhaps in international development, or perhaps in some other way. But they may be facing some hurdles, some setbacks, or may not even quite know where to start. So for someone in this position, what would your advice be? I would say, start where you are, start small, and be consistent. I think a lot of us see the problems that we're facing you know, global pandemics and poverty and climate change. And we get so overwhelmed that we just become paralyzed and don't do anything. Actually, this reminds me of the story behind our name. <laughs> have I ever told you why we're called Charm? You know, I don't think you have actually. Do tell me. Okay. So, so there is a Nobel laureate called Wangari Maathai from Kenya. She's phenomenal. 
internationally acclaimed environmental activist. Like if you don't know her, definitely look her up. But she shares this story about a hummingbird in a film called Dirt that, that goes like this. There was once a forest that was consumed by a fire. All of the animals in the forest fled and watched transfixed as the forest burned. All except for one solitary hummingbird that flew to the nearest stream, took a mouthful of water and dropped it over the flames. And the other animals sat watching as the hummingbird flew back and forth, back and forth. Much larger animals like elephants that, that could carry a lot more water standing there helpless, shouting at the hummingbird, you know, you're too small, your beak is too little, this fire is too big, what do you honestly think you can do? And without stopping, the hummingbird turned to them and said, I may be small, but I'm doing the best that I can. And I mean, for us, we love, we love this story because it does capture that kind of feeling of helplessness and feeling too small. And really, though, that's all any of us can do is our best. But so many of us are the animals sitting on the sidelines, not even realizing our own power. But a group of hummingbirds is called a charm. And so what I would say to people is find your charm, find you know, the people that are passionate about the same things that you are and just do what you can. Because if thousands or millions or even billions of us are doing just a little bit every day, that would transform the world. That is such a wonderful story to end on. And I think we can all agree you have most definitely found your charm at Charm Impact. Beth Larson, you have been wise, you have been vulnerable, you have been utterly wonderful. And you've given us so much to reflect on today. It has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast and I will continue to be the biggest cheerleader of Charm Impact and everything you are doing personally. Thank you, Naomi. Honestly, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today and I will forward to, to further chats. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. This really does make all the difference with getting these messages out there. You can also follow us on Instagram for our latest updates. And please do get in touch if you have any feedback or questions for our guests. Contact details can be found in the bio. The next episode will be coming your way in the next few weeks. But for now, thank you again for listening to Voices of Development. Mm-hmm.